was glad that today they are a child of God. What, a, what an amazing truth. You may take for granted this morning and you may look over it as you, you consider all the trouble in your life, but think about how that radically transforms us. Radically transforms us. So amazing. Well, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, glad you could be with us today. If you want to grab your Bibles, uh, we will be in the book of Isaiah. So you can either use uh, your phone, tablet, Bible, whatever you got. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. And as we're turning there, I uh, just want to encourage you, today is the day of new beginnings for many things in our church. Uh, we have connect groups starting today and the rest of this week, as you hear people shouting out to rep their, their group. Uh, and then we had grow classes start today, financial peace was one of them, and then the person of Jesus study, and give a shout out to Dr. Lindy Davison. She doesn't like when I say that. She, she crushed it this morning. We were joking with her. She's the smartest person in the church, but she had to teach on humility. So it was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, but yeah, it was great. So if you haven't had a chance yet to join us for Grow Classes, that's Sunday mornings, 9.15. Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 through 16. Hear the reading of God's word. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall find none of them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, fear not, fear not. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you speak to us. And we ask today that you would use it to change us, to transform us from the inside out, God. May your Holy Spirit do the work that only the Spirit can do, to transform our minds, hearts, and souls, to love you more and more, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When Franklin D. Roosevelt became the 32nd president of the United States, it was 1933. 1933, if you know a little bit of American history, was a tough year. It was the peak of the Great Depression. People were panicking over the economy. The economy had gotten so bad, 25% of people were out of work. That's a lot of people. At the peak of the pandemic, I think it was about 15%. 
I mean, people were wondering, is this ever going to end? How are we going to get out of this? And this is kind of the mess that he got elected into. And so as he is uh, getting prepared for his inaugural address, he and his speechwriters are considering, how are we going to address the obvious? What are we going to say that might bring comfort? What are we going to say that might uh, calm the fears of this nation as we're in dark days? And so he takes his step up to the podium and he begins to speak and he famously says these words in his opening lines. He says, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Infamous words. And you kind of hear a little bit of the backstory and it it kind of makes you chuckle because the speechwriter later on would admit where he got the words from. He said earlier that week he was in a department store and there was an ad, a marketing ad, and it said the same thing. All we have to fear is fear itself. And he lifted those words and put them in the president's speech. And here we have on the world stage words that inspired, words that got people through difficult times. But the question is, are they true? I mean, they might have come off of a catchy slogan on a department store ad, but And they might have led the nation through dark times, but are they true words? The the idea of, is there really nothing to fear except fear? I mean, sometimes we hear those words today, and you might think, well, that was 90 years ago. The world has changed quite a bit. We've been through wars. We've been through uh, the civil rights movement, social unrest. We've been through uh, the the current crisis we're in, we've been through the, the pandemic, all kinds of things have happened, the rise of technology, the, the increase of, of just connectedness. And, and in fact, I was reading recently that there's sociologists who started studying our capacity for relationship. And, and just to get an idea of, of, of where we are as a society, they're, they're starting to guess somewhere around 150 people is about all the human body can can interact with. Like, that's all we can process. Everybody's got problems and troubles and difficulties, and to try to keep up with everything at all times is is literally beyond our capacity. And yet, almost all of us have more than 150 people in our life. I mean, almost all of us, even if it's just people you see on TV, right? You're trying to keep up with celebrities. You're trying to keep up with social media. You're trying to keep up with six different sports teams. You've got so many things, thousands upon thousands of things that are coming at you on a daily basis. And what does that do to us? Well, one thing it does to us is it keeps us in this constant state of crisis. Because somewhere on some uh, angle of the globe, there, there is something happening. And we got to know about it. And so... There's a blessing and a curse in this constant connectedness where where we're able to know, we're able to empathize, we're able to see things that maybe we didn't see before. But do we have the capacity for that? And what what does that create in our hearts? Because I want to ask you an honest question. Does anyone actually believe you can live without fear today? Like when you hear the Bible say things like, fear not, fear not, fear not, Do any of us actually believe that's possible? Because I I think many of us now, we've become so comfortable with fear, it seems almost like just imaginary out there somewhere. There might be some person on a remote island who doesn't know what's going on and isn't afraid constantly. Because, I mean, let's be honest first as well, uh, 
I'm not saying that there are not good fears, good healthy fears, right? Don't, don't go out and say, the pastor told me to take all my money out of the bank and go to Hard Rock because I should fear not and gamble all my money away. Or don't go out there and walk into oncoming traffic because you should fear not. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about a specific kind of fear, this, this undercurrent of anxiety. It's kind of just always there. Always worried about something happening or something that might happen. What do we do with that? Is, is it even possible to live against that? And so that's what I want to look at today as we continue our series in the book of Isaiah. Last week we were looking at how there's been a major shift in the book. As we're walking through uh, the book of Isaiah, we came to chapter 40 and we talked about how the first 39 chapters are addressed to God's people before they go into exile. So it was mainly this tone of warning. God was coming to them saying, uh, you know, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. If you don't come back to me, if you don't repent and return to me, then this is going to happen. And then they didn't. And then it happened. Babylon came, destroyed the city, and they pulled them away off to Babylon in exile. And now God's people are in exile as Isaiah is addressing them. And chapter 40 through 55 is a completely different tone. It's no longer a tone of warning. Now it's a tone of comfort. It's this comfort for those who are in their darkest moments. Not, not a sense that this is going to come, but you're in the middle of it now. And so how, in the middle of that, do we calm our fears? Do we receive comfort from God? This is what I want to talk about. He, he opens this up to us, and he helps us see it through two things. There's external issues, and there's internal issues. So first, let's look at our external worries. If you're taking notes, number one, external worries. Look at verse 8 with me. God says to them, he says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, stop there for a moment. God is, is rooting the promises He's about to make in their relationship. right? What, what He's saying, if you didn't catch it, is no matter how far gone you've gone, no, no matter how far you've sinned, no matter how much you've rebelled, no matter what's going on and how ugly it's gotten, you're still mine. I still chose you. I still love you. You're still my friend. You're still the one that I've called out to be with me. This is our relationship. And so before God gives them any promises or any commands, He reminds them of who they are. He says, this is your identity. Even if you see around you things that don't seem to make sense, that don't seem to confirm that, this is who you are. And then He says, Fear not. And it's one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture. If you know that in the Bible, it's, it's dozens and dozens of times, even in Isaiah. Someone has said once that, that there's 365 accounts of fear not. I've never counted, but you can go ahead and count and see if that's true. But they say it's for every day of the year. I love that. It makes sense if it is. But, but right, it's, it's over and over throughout the Bible. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And, and it seems kind of odd in this moment. Because here they are with no money, no army, 
no land, no homes of their own. What, what do you mean, fear not? We, we are the most vulnerable, we are the most weak that we have ever been, God. What are you talking about? What, what basis can you say this on? And then this is the promise, for I am with you. I am with you. You may not have all the resources you used to have. It may not be a time of prosperity. It may not be a time of clarity. It may not be things that, that make sense right now, but you still have this promise, I am with you. I'm with you. And notice, notice God's emphasis. He's, he says it over and over. He says, he says, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you, right? He doesn't say anything about them. He doesn't say, fear not because you are in control. No, no, no. Fear not. I am with you. It's his presence. Peace is an awareness of God's presence. It's an awareness of God's presence. A couple years ago, our oldest daughter, she had uh, the opportunity to ride her very first roller coaster. And uh, we were hyping it up. She was excited about it. She had seen it before. We had been there, and, and she kind of chickened out before, but this is like two years later, and she's thinking, I'm old enough now. I'm big enough. I'm, I'm going to do this. And so she's excited about it. And then we show up, and she hears the kids screaming. Right? She, she walks up to the line and she hears everybody screaming. She hears the metal creaking. She hears like, you know, this, this sound where, where the brakes or whatever that sound is, where the big whoosh. Right? She hears that and her eyes get real big. And she starts to wonder, like, is this what I'm, I'm going to get on? And, and I look over at her. I see her staring in fear. And, and I ask her just, you know, gently, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you still excited about this? And she says... Daddy, are, are you going to be there with me? And I said, yeah, I'll be right by your side. She said, oh, okay, then, then I'll go. And so she gets in line, and her eyes are still just as big. She gets on the first cart that's available, and we sit next to each other, and she just curls up and holds on as tight as she can to my arm and didn't let go the entire ride. Why? Because she, she didn't have peace because she trusted the ride, she didn't trust the ride the entire time. But at some point, she realized, I could have peace because of my dad's presence. Because of his presence, right? It was peace that brought presence. There's a difference there where you have confidence in what you think is going to happen or what you can do or what the situation might be like versus simply, he is present. I want to ask you today, what... What is the, the source of your peace? Because I would guess if you're like me, there's, there's a lot of us in this room that we go to places that our culture tells us to go to. A couple of them I would tell you, just right off the bat, if you want to write these down. First is deny. Right? The, the culture tells us if, if you come up against a problem, first response is deny it. Oh, there's not a problem? What are you talking about a problem? There, there's no problem. There's no threat. There's no issue. What's there to be afraid of? Because to admit there's a problem means now I have to do something about it, so I'm just going to deny it as long as I possibly can. And it gives us some kind of sense of peace because we convince ourselves it's not really a big deal. Or if you can't deny it long enough, then the second thing is you'll, you'll defend, right? You'll, you'll admit, okay, okay, there is a problem, but it's not my fault. 
Um, you start defending yourself because you think it's got to be somebody else out there. And so, again, you calm your fears by realizing this isn't my issue. This is someone else's issue. And I'm going to show you all the ways that they have done it wrong. And I'll defend and defend and defend until finally, again, you can't defend forever. You can't deny. You can't defend. What do you do next? You distract Right? Distraction is, I, I know that it's a problem, but I just can't deal with this because I'm starting to realize I don't have what it takes to face the problem. I, I'm admitting that, yes, there's a problem, but I, I can't do it. I, I can't be a part of the solution. And so I'm going to calm my fears by Netflix or working harder or you know, staying out with the friends or, or staying up late, whatever it is, I got I to gotta make myself feel a little bit better by distracting my life. And God is saying here to Israel, none of those are where peace comes from. Peace comes from presence, right? God's first move in the gospel for, for gospel peace in your life and in my life is that he would come be near to us. Come be near to us, right? This is a radically different way of thinking. God is saying, don't deny the problem as if it's not there. Own it and say, I'm with you. He's saying, you don't have to, you don't have to defend that you are not part of the problem. You can own it and say, yes, I have been a part of this, but I'm with you. I'm not with somebody else. I'm with you. I chose to be with you, even though it's your fault. But also, you don't have to Distract yourself with some other false lie or, or, or other things to keep you occupied. You can own the problem and say, I'm going to fill my mind not with lies, but I'm going to fill my mind with this truth. The I am is with me. He is with me. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, the Lord is near. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. You catch that? The Lord is near, therefore do not be anxious about anything. Right? He's saying that it's not some baseless claim, like you're, you're just going to live in la-la land and pretend like there's no problem, but, but because there's this truth, this foundational truth that God is near to you, He's never left you, He's never forsaken you, you can be anxious about nothing. Now that sounds radical, right? I mean, and, and to be honest with you, it, it feels almost like some idea way out there. Let me, let me let you in on how God typically fulfills this promise. It's through you. The way God usually fulfills His promise of being with us and being present with us is through His people. It's through His people. Some people have called it the ministry of presence where God is calling us as His people to the side of another person who's going through a hard time. Maybe they're going through a divorce, or they're going through a loss, or they're going through a rough financial patch, whatever it may be. Maybe sin has just caught them up in, in something drastic. And, and God is saying, this, this is an opportunity for you to be present. Right? I mean, all of us on some level right now, we are going through great grief, great pain as a whole community. And what we need now more than anything is presence. Presence. Not words. Not advice. Not your fix-it. See, so many people don't want to get involved to help someone else because they don't feel like they've got the solution. Well, good. All you need is you. You just show up. 
and you be present. And the very first step is just to say, I'll be with you. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to do, but I can be with you. And to give you this tangible sense that God is with you, because he is. He's with you. And, and then, listen, God, God doesn't just speak to our, our external worries, but he, then He speaks to their internal weakness. And this is the second point. Look at verse 14 again. He says it again. He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob. You worm Jacob. You men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, don't go home and start calling your spouse a worm, but, but God, gets, God gets this pass. He, he's able to say to his people this hard truth, and, and he says to them, you worm. Right after he repeats, fear not. I mean, he repeats it again and again, and then right here, fear not, you worm. What, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, it seems not just a little awkward, but, but even out of place if you go back and you read uh, verse 11 and 12, because God has just gotten done telling them that they're going to conquer all these enemies. Did you hear when we were reading it? He, he was saying that you're going to look around and you're not going to be able to find a single person who's against you because they will all be gone. That, that's how much I'm going to take care of your problem. You won't be able to find any other problems. And then he says, you worm. What, what are you talking about? How, how is the worm going to bring about this kind of radical transformation? How, how is a worm going to win a war against these nations? What is God doing? Well, God is he's saying this. He's, he's reminding them this is not going to happen because of your strength. This is going to happen because of my strength. And specifically, I'm going to do it through you because I'm going to transform you into the type of person who can do it. And this is what he says. He gives this miraculous promise in verse 15. He says, Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. Right? The threshing, or the, the, yeah, the threshing sledge, if I can say it, was a heavy uh, wooden platform. It, it was this thing used in their farming culture where uh, it on one side had these rough stones and, and sharp metal and uh, you would drag it. It was real heavy. You would drag it across your crop and it would break up the crop and get it ready for winnowing, which is to separate uh, the, the, the grain. And so you would you would use this huge uh, threshing sledge to, to break things up and, and he's saying, I'm going to make you into one of those. But not just any threshing sledge. I'm, I'm going to make you into one that's brand new, that's sharp, and, it, and literally it says that has many teeth. It's full of teeth. Right? I, I'm going to give you or, or make you into something that, that could even thresh the mountains if it had to. I mean, this is this supernatural picture of, of power that you, you could crush the mountains. That, that's how powerful you're going to be. But it's not going to be in your power. It's not going to be in your strength. It's going to be through the worm. You uh, inferior, weak, helpless person, Jacob, you're going to do this because God does his best work in weakness. In weakness. Listen, there, there was a painter by the name of Mark Rothko. He was an American abstract artist in the 20th century, and he was well-educated, but he had really no um, formal training in art. 
yet he became really famous. He became famous for his style of painting called color field painting. And uh, I don't know much about art, but, but what it's been described to is, uh, for me is, is basically these long horizontal blocks of color. And if you look at it, you don't think it's very much, but, but apparently it was really popular and became highly successful. Now today, his original paintings are worth millions. And there, there's a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones, who's the author of the famous Jesus Storybook Bible, and she talks about when she went to New York to, uh, to go to the modern art uh, museum, and she says, we were standing there looking at one of his paintings, and I couldn't help but listen to the person next to me as she was standing there, this woman next to her, and she said, my child could paint that. My, my child could. I mean, what, what is that? What kind of painting is that? I mean, I'll, I'll admit, this kind of thing I would say if I'm looking at art, because I don't know much about art, and, and if I see just a big rectangle with orange, like I... I don't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to me. But, but she heard this woman say that, and she thought to herself, well, isn't that the point? My child could paint that? And she wrote this in, in an interview as she was reflecting on that, that moment. She said, the power of a child's art is defined by what they can't do, by their lack. They know they can't do it. And as a result, their art is not about showing off skill or expertise. It's coming from somewhere else. The power of the art comes not from their ability or their strength. It comes from their weakness. Their not being able, their vulnerability. And then she goes on to quote uh, Picasso, the famous artist, and he said this. He said, it took me four years to learn to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. A lifetime. And think about that. It's hard to believe that the best work God does is in weakness. It's hard to believe that because we live in a world that's constantly pushing against that and giving us a different narrative, which is the best work is done in your strength. The best work is, is done in the way that you can show your gifts and your talents and, and all that you can offer, and that's what you can offer. That, that's the best you can give to the world. And where you're weak, we try to say things like, oh, just be encouraged, you, you got this. You were made for this, right? You ever encourage somebody like that? You got this. And that's not necessarily bad, right? I mean, sometimes you do got this, right? Sometimes you were made for this, but sometimes you weren't. And sometimes you don't. And, and what, what do you do? What kind of encouragement do you have for somebody when they don't have what it takes? When you come up against a task that's, that's well beyond you. What kind of encouragement do you give to somebody when, when you come up against a task like, I don't have what it takes to parent my kids anymore. I don't have what it takes to try to provide for my family anymore. I don't have what it takes to try to deal with my past that's so full of shame. I don't even know where to start. I, I don't have what it takes. See, it, it's, it's encouraging when it's something small and something you're capable of doing, but what about when you can't? See, the best the world has to offer is to tell you to dig deeper, try harder, work more, because it ends with you. And the moment you hit your point of weakness, really that's where uh, the weak get crushed, the weak get marginalized, the weak get avoided or hidden, because we don't have a place in our society for the weak. We don't have a place for people who don't have what it takes, and so you better get it together or you're done. But God says in the gospel, 
right there when you come against your weakness, when you find out you're a worm, that's where I do my best work. That's where I do my best work. He does his best work in the areas where you have nothing more to offer than a slug on the sidewalk. He does his best work when we have no way of protecting ourselves. He does his best work when we come to the end of our ability, right? I mean, so much of our fear is driven by coming to terms with the fact that we don't have what it takes. We've come up against our weakness and we have to admit it. I don't have it. And I'm afraid because I don't know how to let God work. I don't know how to to pause and, and to let him use his strength. I don't know how to just say, this is not something I can do, but it's something he can do. I don't know what to do, and so I'm afraid. And this is where Paul was in his weakness in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, we we don't know how to paint like a child. We we don't even know what it means to work out of our weakness. But let me tell you, that, that is the mark of maturity. The mark of maturity in Christ is when you're able to boast in your weakness. When you're able to boast, not not in all the things you've achieved, not in all the things you're good at, not in all the progress you've made in your life or or the places you've overcome sin or or whatever it may be, but, but where you're able to boast in weakness. And say, this, this is where I love to be because this is where God works. And let me tell you, that that is a hard place to get and it's not a fast place to get. It'll be a place that God brings you to over years and years of, of you realizing it's not my strength. It's His. And time after time after time, eventually you begin to see, man, this, this is what God loves to do. He he loves this. He he enjoys being in this place where I have nothing and he has everything. And so I'm going to rejoice because here we are again in the place of weakness. That's the mark of maturity. The mature Christian is not the the Christian who has it all together. The mature Christian is not the person who's figured out all the answers. The mature Christian is not the person who's strong in the Lord in their own strength. It's the weak. And it's to the weak that God does His greatest work. And this is the last point, His redeeming work. Look again at verse 14, what He says. For the third time, He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. And here it is. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Your Redeemer. The Hebrew word there is goel. It's it's often translated the kinsman redeemer. And maybe you've heard that term before, and, and the word kinsman, or the title kinsman redeemer, is a specific title within a family structure in the Jewish culture. And the law had it to where the kinsman redeemer was a male person in the family who was responsible for a widow. So if their family member uh, passed away, the widow of that person was now their responsibility to take care of them and to provide for them, and they would redeem them by, by marrying them and giving them a child so that the child could carry on the family line and carry on uh, what, what they needed to do. And so this, this person, this, this kinsman redeemer, the Goel, was, was known throughout their culture, and possibly the most famous of all time, of course, was Boaz and Ruth. 
and Boaz and Ruth, their story uh, begins with Ruth and Naomi's story as, as Ruth and Naomi uh, were both widows. Ruth married Naomi's son, and, and both of them lost their husbands around the same time. And so here they are trying to take care of one another, but because of their social status, because of losing their husband and not having work to provide and not having all the things they needed, they were vulnerable. They were weak. They didn't have what they needed. At any moment, a woman who was a widow in their culture could be pushed into prostitution, pushed into homelessness. That, that was the place that they were in. They didn't have social services. They didn't have uh, life insurance. They didn't have these kinds of things in modern society that might bring about a safety net. They had nothing. And so as they are trying to make it and, and just go day by day, they're realizing we need a redeemer. And we need not just any redeemer. We need one who's willing to take the risk of love. And so they come to find that there is a redeemer in their family. There's someone who's closest kin to Naomi, and they meet up with the guy, and we're not even told his name in the story. I don't know why. I don't know if it was too, too much shame to even put his name in the Bible, but, but the guy says, you know what? I don't want any part of this. This is going to be too costly. This is going to take away from my inheritance. And, and so I'm not going to redeem their family. I'm going to let them go. And when he does that, when he gives up his rights to redeem Boaz has the opportunity and he steps in, he comes to the city gates and he hears these people talking about the situation and he steps right in and he says, I will redeem them. I will redeem them. And they say, are you sure you're going to redeem them? Do you, do you know what that means? And he said, yes, I, I know what that means. Are you sure? You, you know that their debt is going to be your debt. Their trouble is going to be your trouble. Their problems are going to be your problems. If you redeem them, you're taking ownership of everything that they have experienced. Yes, I will redeem them. And he goes through the ceremony to, to redeem their family, and he marries Ruth, and, and they have a son, and their son will become the great-grandfather of King David. He will, be, he will continue the messianic line all the way to Jesus himself, all because Boaz was willing to be their redeemer. All because Boaz was willing to give up his power for their weakness. He was, give, he was willing to give up his wealth for their poverty. He was willing to give up his heart for their fears, right? He's risking this redeeming love so that he can have ownership over their problem so that he could save them. To love from the inside, not the outside. See, this is exactly what Jesus does in the gospel. Jesus owns our sin to obtain our salvation. Right? He is our true and better kinsman redeemer. He was God's law and love became flesh. So God didn't just send this rule book to save us. God said, I want to send my son. I'm going to send the one who, who can save you, who can redeem you, the one who, who can own all of your mess who can own all of your debt, all of your pain, all of your sin. He's going to take it upon himself because he is willing. He is willing to take the risk. Jesus is saying when he comes from heaven to earth, he's saying, I don't care what the cost is. I don't care what it's going to mean for me. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to do not the logical thing, but the loving thing. 
and I'm going to save them. And Jesus comes doing that, saying, fear not, I will pay the cost. Fear not, whatever it takes, I will be your redeemer. I will own the burden of your sin. I will own the guilt of your rebellion. I will own the shame of your failure. I will own the highest cost for my greatest joy because I will go to the cross for you. See, Jesus' risky love, it's what transforms us. It's what takes us from a worm to this threshing sledge. It's what takes us from outsiders to insiders. So, So that once we were strangers, but now we're sons and daughters. Once we were spiritually poor, but now we are co-heirs. Once we were enemies, but now we're his bride. Once we had no future, but now our future is secure. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus would redeem the weak and the vulnerable and the lost and the sinful because he wants us. He wants us. And listen, as we close, I want to ask you, whatever your fear may be today, whatever trouble you find yourself in, God is is calling us to himself to say, I've done the work for you. And so all the worries, all the anxiety that, that swirls around on a daily basis for us, God steps in and he says, I will be present. But not only will I be present, I will bring my power to change, to transform to to take you by my side, to say, I will fight for you. I I will surround you. I will heal you. All all the things he just promised. He said, this is what I do because I am your redeemer. And so whatever is mine now becomes yours. And I know some of us, you hear that and and you think, man, I've been trying to trust God and I've been trying to get over my fears and live by faith, but but it seems like I just can't do that. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to get out of that. Here's what I want you to ponder for a little while. Just just pray and reflect on this. Who has loved you like Jesus has loved you? Not a single person. Nobody has given their life for you. Nobody left heaven for you. Nobody went down to hell for you. Nobody has given their body and and their spirit for you. Nobody has given everything they have. Only Jesus. And so, yes, it might be hard to trust other people, and it might be difficult to live by faith in, in organizations or, or friends or, or family members, but listen, we're, we're talking about a Redeemer who gave everything. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. He's proven His trust over and over and over again. And so He's saying, fear not. I, that person, I am with you. I'm with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your promise that you would be the God with us. You are the great Emmanuel. And even more incredible to think about is not only did you come for a short time, for 30 years, walk among us and die among us and rise, but but you sent your spirit and you now live in us. You are the God with us and in us. And so Lord, may, may we live in the, in the hope, live in the excitement and joy of uh, knowing your spirit abides in us. Your very presence goes with us wherever we go. You go with us into the darkness, into the shame, into the fears into the anxiety you go with us and you conquer and so we pray lord that you would 
today. Remind us of that. Help us to come back to the truth and be led to rejoice in your work. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>